Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Enough Wicker. I'm Lauren. And I'm Sarah. And today we have a very, very special guest with us today. Sarah, you want to tell us a little bit about who's joining us? Yes, we have another illustrious guest scholar here today, Dr. Wendy A. Burns-Artolino. She is a professor at Grand Valley State University, and she wrote a really amazing book uh, called TV Female Foursomes and Their Fans. Um, and it's about the Golden Girls, but of course, many, many, many other television shows with female foursomes as the stars um, and how they interconnect and just all of the amazing things that they can tell us about culture. So. Really, you know, we're in the right place talking to her. (laughs) Welcome, Wendy. Thank you for having me, Sarah and Lauren. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Um, Maybe you could just start, um, you know, with for our listeners and for us too, just like talk about how you ended up uh, writing a whole book on amazing television shows. So um, I, I think you asked me earlier about the term scholar fan, and I've been thinking a lot about that, um, how that. Uh, really does frame out the work that I do in the book. Um, You know, it's hard to, when you're a scholar and a fan, it's hard to determine whether you were a scholar first or a fan first, but um, the definition of the term scholar fan comes from a a guy named Matt Hill, who wrote a book on fan cultures. And um, his uh, definition has largely to do with people who are scholars using scholarly venues and scholarly language to talk about um, mass culture and in particular popular culture. And so um, television studies is a sub uh, category under uh, mass media, um, also under media studies. And so I would, um, to the extent that I am, I am a cultural studies PhD. Um, I am a, a scholar of culture. Um, first and foremost, but I would say that I have always loved uh, television and I've always been drawn to strong women characters on television, which um, is not shocking in and of itself, but of course the fact that um, we're in this era where we're seeing a resurgence in um, powerful women leaders and strong representations of of women uh, globally, um, and in the U.S., um, particularly uh, women of color, um, it, I really am excited um, to continue the conversation about the Golden Girls. Um, and also, I think the fact that the Golden Girls are an aging population, that matters too, right? Because these are strong women who work together to achieve goals, to um, explore different avenues uh, for their own agency, um, and it's just, it's always been a provocative show to me. Um, I actually, because I knew I was going to be seeing you all, um, went back and watched a, a few episodes, even this morning, just to kind of have uh, a few things uh, on the top of my head. And I just, you know, f- you just fall in love with them all over again. You know, even if you haven't seen them for a while, they're like old friends and you just uh, flip, flip on the show and there it is. And the last time we talked, we talked about how they're now on Hulu, which I think, you know, um, talking about what um, mainstream media is today, Hulu would be construed as very mainstream media. So I'm sure there are folks who are watching um, the Golden Girls. Um, and by the way, Designing Women is on there too. Uh, so those two female forces. And Living shows, Single. Uh, for the oh, and living single for the first time, right? It, some some folks are are experiencing them for the first time, whereas I speak for myself as a Gen Xer. Um, these were the the women that populated um, my television world in the late '80s um, and early '90s. So that's kind of how I came into it. Um, and I guess the fact that I'm a media studies scholar uh, under this sub umbrella of cultural studies. Well, that's a long way around your question, but. No, I love it. And I, I love when you talked about falling in love with them over again. I mean, there was a, mm-hmm. one of the message boards. So so in your book, you, you study fan message, message boards as part of just like the fan culture that pops up around these shows. And one, one fan, I remember she talked about the Golden Girls saying, this show is like comfort food to me. Like no matter how bad a day I have, I feel better watching the show. So that's like that exact same emotion that a lot of us connect to. Um, 
but going back to, so that definition of scholar fan by Hill was so interesting because in that definition, it doesn't seem like you actually have to be a, like a fan of the show per se. You're just interested in the television show. Well, I, mean, I that, think, or is it, yeah. yeah, I think for him, he's saying that um, the, the scholar fan is someone who is passionate about the show, whether um, sometimes it's because it's a, a genre, like if you're a yeah. Trekkie, maybe you're uh, really interested in sci-fi and you do um, comparatives among sci-fi programs. Um, so I don't know, I maybe I am a, a fan of uh, TV female foursomes for some uh, reason that I don't identify in the book, but um, definitely I think the impetus for the book for me was there's something going on in these shows with these four women characters. What is it? And what what drew me to like really answer that question was what am I getting out of it as a viewer? And so I really did interrogate myself first. Like I was kind of my first, uh, like almost an auto ethnographic uh, approach, right? What What is it about these shows? Why do you keep watching them over and over and over again? Because I did, I watched them on, on reruns for years. Um, and to me, what I, I kept coming back to is that we're seeing four very different uh, worldviews and perspectives as, and um, those lenses kind of both help uh, us make sense as, as viewers of the world, but also um, help us to question our own perspectives, right? And our own biases. And so I think in a way, the, the four uh, strong female uh, foursome characters actually open up uh, a new way of looking, a new way of understanding, and also the fact that that these women could, you know, disagree on a lot of um, issues um, and came at things from very different lenses, but they were still fast friends, right? The friendships survived through all of that. And so one of the chapters in my book is called Sisterhood um, and Solidarity. And I really do think that um, the Golden Girls you know, encapsulates that based on, you know, the highs and the lows and the challenges and, you know, falling flat on their faces and, you know, being cheated on or lied to or, you know, losing everything they have, all of those things, losing jobs, losing partners, losing husbands, all of those things, kids, right? Yeah. And yeah, kids, and they all come back together, uh, all four of them over and over again. So really exciting stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, that's really interesting. And admittedly, we are both most familiar, obviously, with the Golden Girls of, of the shows that you looked at, but also throughout, uh, from what I know about Designing Women and Girlfriends and all of these other shows, the friendship that you're talking about is the core. Like the, the family unit is different than a predictable nuclear family show. Um, and so actually, that's a great transition to one of our questions, which is um, how does watching the Golden Girls in particular, but all of these shows um, help invite oppositional readings of mainstream dominant culture, both of women and of family and of sort of conventionally living your lives. So uh, we'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, I try to do that throughout the book. I, I, that's kind of a strand that I, throughout the book, um, try to keep running, you know, consciously throughout the book, because like I said, as you know, members, individual members, and maybe more than one member encounter different struggles in their lives or, or challenges in their lives. Um, I really think we see them working through those problems as a group, right? And so I think that's one of the things that families do, right? Like, and I talk in the book about them being an alternative family. Um, and I think that they are, I mean, the fact that they occupy different positionalities at different points is, you know, I say in the book, there are types and tropes that they occupy, but then I also say that they are foils for one another, right? Um, you know, so for example, Rose's uh, naivete, right? She, she is a great foil for Blanche, you know, who's very worldly and, you know, has, uh, the capacity to lure men to her like a sexy siren, you know, um, even I was thinking today, which I did not bring this up in the book. So there you go. You still like learn stuff every time I was thinking 
geographically, they're from different places, right? Because Sophia and um, Dorothy uh, are from Brooklyn. I know Sophia's from Italy, but you know they they have this whole you know East Coast New York thing going on. Um, you know, and Blanche is supposed to be from the the South, and you know we we she uh, you know waxes uh, sentimental and nostalgic about the old South, so you kind of wonder how old is this woman. Um, but then we have the Saint Olaf stories of Rose, which you know all of those are in sh sharp contrast to one another. So again, even geographically, um, we we see th those differences, but they, they work things out together and they support each other through those hardships. And one of the episodes that I was thinking of today, I didn't watch it, but I was thinking of it today, is the one when um, Dorothy has, and I think it's a double episode where she has uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, but yeah. they don't know what's wrong with her. And she has this horrible experience with this doctor, Dr. Bud, and he, he totally, um, makes her feel invisible and neurotic and crazy. Um, but then they're in a restaurant um, after meeting him and she, you know, goes over and approaches him and basically says, you can't treat women like this. You shouldn't treat people like this. And she really like lets him have it in, in a, a very like, um, I the sh show that I watched growing up that kind of reminds me of that moment is um, One Day at a Time um, in a kind of a MS Romano kind of way. That's how she tells them off. Um, or maybe, you know, uh, a Dixie Carter designing woman, uh, women moment as well. So it's just so powerful because there those women are all together and um, they're celebrating with champagne. And Sophia's making a big joke out of the fact that they finally know that her daughter has this chronic illness and the waiter is like, my daughter really? has or... a debilitating disease. We're celebrating. <laughs> right. So, I mean, they, you know, you got all that going on, but still it's a really powerful moment when Dorothy confronts her doctor, but the her physician, but the fact that they're all there together supporting her through it. And they've been there now for, you know, this is the second episode about being sick and tired, I think is what it's titled. So just so powerful and just such an, a great example of that alternative family. We're always going to be here for each other, sisterhood and solidarity moment, really. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's great. They, the, that moment particularly comes up all the time and that Dorothy is that sort of social voice of reason and, you know, being, it, it, I mean, it's interesting that, that you bring up that episode too, because, you know, as, as you know, we talked to another scholar, Debbie Macy, um, mm -hmm. who you actually talk about in your book. And, you know, she yeah. studied those sort of archetypal versions. And, you know, she makes that same argument of like, Dorothy being the spokesperson that can not only speak for her particular perspective and also sort of for the group on television, but really speaking to the audience and, you know, getting them to slightly see a different perspective um, of what in this particular case, women go through at doctors, you know? Um, and I also love that, that, you know, Dorothy is so powerful in that moment that even Dr. Bud's wife is like, shut up and listen to this woman, <laughs> like stop talking. It's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, but think, so thinking, you know, back to Debbie Macy, like you talk about in your book that like you really, she mentioned in her paper previously that there needs to be more study. There needs to be more scholarly articles um, and uh, analysis of, of TV female foursome shows and just like the way that it works. And you were talking about an, audi an updated audience reception study uh, of these sort of recombinant characters. So could you talk a little bit, I mentioned message boards before, but could you talk a little bit about, you know, the, the methodology you used to study these shows and, and the Golden Girls in particular? Sure. I want to go back to what Lauren asked me, which I'm not oh, yeah. sure I exactly answered it, but um, I, I think that the way that we end up with negotiated or oppositional readings as opposed to preferred readings in, in these shows is precisely because we have this multiplicity of worldviews and kind of this, these hybrid um, women characters that are you know always moving around to support each other through whatever the hardship or challenge is and it's it's just really um something that i think repeats on these shows over and over again and um, especially 
you know, in the case of, of the Golden Girls. And, and the reason I brought up that episode is I think that's one of those uh, episodes that's very galvanizing for women who might not feel empowered to, you know, to speak back to uh, an authority figure, um, to speak back to a male authority figure, to speak back to their own doctor. And I think in particular, that moment to me is like, um, women speaking back to the patriarchy. And so that's a way where I think we get like that resistant um, or even oppositional reading on, for example, you know, the physician as the all-knowing, all-powerful, omnipotent person. So that's that's a reading that I think that that episode offers really powerfully or proffers really powerfully to viewers. Um, I'm glad you brought up um, Macy's uh, work because what was so funny about that was I ended up uh, reading uh, her work um, when I was probably like still in the beginning stages but like maybe I, I probably had been doing the research for the book for a, a couple of years right so I, and then I like came to her work and as I was reading her work I was like Oh my gosh. I was like, so it was, it was funny because it was, she was so validating because I'm not crazy to be studying these female foursome shows, right? She's already been doing this work. This is really awesome. This means I'm like on a, you know, basically I'm on the track, right? I'm on the right trail. Talk about um, female so solidarity. Yeah, exactly. So there's that. Um, and then, and actually there, I, um, there is a, um, there's a, it's like an honors thesis that a student did. And I, I am blanking on the name of the student, but it's in, her name is in my book. Um, and she kind of is the same way for me for um, living single. And I actually ended up writing to her thesis advisor to get a copy of her thesis because it, it wasn't easily accessible um, at the time. So the definitely um, other scholars, you know, like, um, Macy uh, informed my own um, lens. Um, and I thought also, um, you know, I wasn't really sure what my methodological approach was going to be to the work, right? I had been reading online message boards, which, you know, you got to think back that, I mean, this research was largely, I think I started in like 2002-ish um, until like 2013. And so I actually ended up um, looking at more than a thousand fan posts per uh, show, um, you know, so hundreds of pages of fan posts. But in terms of the technology at the time, like having a fan based message board or an online fan forum was the way that people were communicating about these shows, right? I don't, I don't know to what extent that is the case now, and I haven't been immersed in that world in a while. So I, I wouldn't be able to say, oh, and today this is how that happens, right? Um, but for example, um, TV without pity, um, sitcoms and other yucky stuff, I think ooeu.com, um, those were some of the sources that I was using for fan-based message uh, posts and um, also um, online fan forums. Even I think imdb.com had um, fan-based message boards at that yeah. time. So, I mean, and so like those scholars that informed the direction of my own uh, study, I also would say those uh, reading the first fan posts that I ever read that actually did make connections among the shows. I think there were several that made connections between even three or four of the shows that I was treating. And I think um, those really did, again, say, okay, other people are making these connections. I'm not trying to spit a, put a square peg in a round hole. Yeah. This is really happening. These types and tropes are repeating over time and they have meaning. And um, I think most powerfully that the fans themselves we're making, continuing to make meaning out of these shows long, long, long after the shows um, had gone out of, um, off the air, right? Like they, maybe the reruns were on, but they, they, they stopped making um, 
designing women episodes. They stopped making Golden Girl episodes in the early 90s, right? So that's a long time. And I was actually just thinking about that today because I think the Golden Girls went off in 92. So here we are, you know, in 2021, we're almost at the 30 year mark. And this show is going strong, right? right? And potentially, I don't know the statistics currently, but potentially picking up new viewers. I mean, how many shows can you say that of? So that's really powerful. And so to answer your question about the reception um, study, I really think that, um, and coincidentally in cultural studies at that time, so like I'm saying the early 2000s, reception study was where it was at. So I was thinking, how can I do a reception study of television? And I came up with this idea of using fan-based message boards, but not knowing that there would be enough, right? Thinking, okay, well, I could do that. And then I'd have to look at some bloggers and then I don't know what else I would have to kind of stitch the thing together with. But so I was blown away when it turned out that there was that much chatter about these shows, right? In general you know, and like I said, to this day, people will, I will have friends that will even just email me or like text me or like Facebook message me. And they'll be like, I just saw this episode and it's the funniest thing. And you'll never believe that this just completely applies to my life. And I told my sister that she should just do this, that she should do what Blanche would do. What would Dorothy do? This is what I have to say to you. You know, this, and so that these people are finding comfort in, and they're the memes on Facebook are for golden girls. I think I said this in our last conversation. They're off the chain, really. The, the memes. <laughs> They're, and they're generated at such an alarmingly speedy rate. I feel like people are so good about referencing something, you know, a deep cut sometimes too from a Golden Girls reference and just like popping it on Instagram or Facebook. Um, it's funny that you say, you talk about like sort of where it happens now. And I am nostalgic for fan forums. I think I was um, at the right age when like everybody sort of had the internet access because I specifically remember being very active on the one for Chicago, the movie, <laughs> and a couple others. And I I feel like what was so great about it was, um, you know, anybody could go there and talk about this one thing that connects them. And it's still very present. I actually just recently tried to join a Golden Girls Facebook group, but, and it's regulated now. So they'll ask you like, trivia questions like where was Rose from and you have to click it because they want to make sure you're a real fan you know there's some some gatekeeping going on well there's a there's a fan screener I had no idea I know I was like what is this um but well, actually, I think I think you're right Lauren too there it's also spread everywhere right like you can go on reddit you can go on facebook you're on instagram mm-hmm. there's a twitter community there's also the forums but they're a little antiquated and like less touched you know I mean there, mm-hmm. there's probably other places we don't even know about so yeah it's, it's kind of like not the place its places. Yeah. Um, so now that we're on, we're talking sort of about fandom and, and these, uh, this community building type of thing. Um, there's a couple specific instances in the book that I want to talk about. Um, and basically like why these instances would, would compel people to seek out these type of forums or community. Um, Mm -hmm. and the first one is, um, there's a bit in the book about people really, sort of being tickled or uh, interested in like the sexual pursuits of the Golden Girls and and definitely as something that's funny and, and you know, brings humor. But I wondered if there's any sort of realistic connection to that, that like gives women of a certain age or anyone really permission to kind of either laugh at that or just talk about sexual sexuality in a way that prior to the show or at least prior maybe to even finding this community they were sort of not quote-unquote allowed to you know what doors does that open up yeah I mean I to me the episode that did that was the one when they're getting ready to go on a cruise and they're they decide they need (laughs) to buy condoms and they're they're like trying to talk to each other like we are women of a certain age. We know how to prepare ourselves to go on a cruise with, you know, eligible and attractive men. And, you know, we have been seeing them for a while and this is fine. And they're like talking it through, they're rationalizing it. Right. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, Susan Harris is brilliant, right? Because she's 
writing what she wants to inform the audience of in dialogic form, right? And I, I'm, I'm just sitting there going, wow, this is, you know, groundbreaking, right? Because, and that's the other thing, like at the time I was like convinced, I, you know, cause they're always making fun of like, who's what age, but they never actually say who's what age. So you don't, you don't really know, right? And so, you know, I think uh, as somebody who's gone back and watched the show many times, I'm like, how old are they? I don't know. I'm really unsure, right? Because at, at one point, Dorothy, you know, Dorothy's a substitute teacher and she's still working and you know, Blanche is working at the museum. So she's not retired and you're or at the art gallery. So she's not retired. So, and, you know, and then Rose has to get a job, but she doesn't really have a paid job and you're not really sure. The whole time I'm wondering how old are these women the whole time? Um, so, but I think, the trick on that is, is it doesn't matter how old they are, right? They are beyond the age at which our culture, which I say U.S. culture, U.S. culture, um, believes that women are sexually active, or if they are sexually active, they shouldn't be talking about being sexually active. So there they are in the store. They've had this rationalizing moment, and then they choose their boxes of condoms and then they get to the front and the guy has to call for a price check on the condoms and he's naming the types of condoms that they have uh, you know, brought to the front for him. And he's like, and the blonde has the black and ultra sensitive, you know, and there, I mean, the laugh track is just going nuts, right? I'm going nuts watching it. Um, they're going nuts, like trying not to be embarrassed, but then the whole store is looking at them. But I think, you know, this is exactly, exactly what the moment called for. And that, I mean, that's why the show was so groundbreaking, you know, because they have just the right amount of, we're reticent to talk about this, but let me just tell you, let's get down to brass tacks. This is a real need for us women of our age, right? That, that uh, idea of, we have to talk about this. This is our sort of progressive talking point amongst ourselves but we're still hesitant because we are women of a certain age from a certain generation, from a certain place. And in a lot of cases, that's a conservative place from, you know, especially Rose's, <laughs> Rose's uh, upbringing, et cetera. Um, or as mentioned before, you know, Blanche's antebellum tendencies, but there, there's, there's really, that's really present in so many of those social issues in the show where they just say it out loud, this is uncomfortable, but let's work through this together or let's talk about this. Or they, they really vocalize like, I changed my mind based on new information. So it's really interesting like that, when you talked about that hesitancy where they like verbalize the hesitancy, I feel like that's present in so many of those sort of groundbreaking quote unquote, very special episodes that really cover that tough stuff. Yeah, and I would say that they are, um, well, and you all I'm sure have talked about this, you know, there, there's huge uh, gay following uh, for the show. And I think, you know, because they are groundbreaking, right? Because they are challenging sexual mores and values because they are, um, you know, engaging in like, banter where they're like you know Sophia if she calls Blanche a slut once she calls her a slut 20 million times right but it's like she's able to do it like with almost as a term of endearment at a certain point I mean there's no love lost or anything I mean that's just how she says it so I mean I'm sure there are people who are like that's the worst thing you could ever call a woman you know I'm sure there is that reading going on too somewhere but I I feel like you know, that the way that they interact with one another um, out of a place of, of real friendship and, you know, they would do anything for each other, that they're allowed to critique each other base. And that, again, that's like that family thing, right? That's their alternative family at work too. Lauren, you want to go into your further, you had other examples of this. I did. Um, well, first on the, the, that condom scene is interesting because I feel like it is, um, it's one of the more memed scenes for sure. And is also, I think very familiar for people who haven't even seen the show, but just recognize it. And it's a really interesting comedic device. Cause I think Sarah, you're, you were 
sort of getting to this, but they often do like the worst case scenario. Like if you were, you know, uh, going to buy condoms and you were already kind of embarrassed about it, like what would be the worst possible thing that could happen? And it's like, oh, they would announce what kind of condoms you were buying over the-, the... And point you out personally. <laughs> right. But it, and, and, you know, like that scene ends with Blanche kind of assuming this very heroic role of being like, we are sexually active women being responsible. And that's the message, right? And, and Sarah, we have talked about this in other episodes where um, they kind of hide the message in dialogue. And the same thing happens with the HIV AIDS episode when Blanche is like, this is not a bad person's disease. And those two examples I just thought of were Blanche sort of assuming the uh, kind of maternal role for lack of a better term, but, um, in the book, you talk about how that happens frequently where it's like not the actual mother figure, whether it's like Julia Sugarbaker or Sophia, it's often someone else assuming that role. And I also want to talk about the relatability of that because I, I imagine um, that was very active as well on the forums and just kind of explore why that piece is so relatable of somebody who's either not a mother or not the maternal figure in a group, but assuming that role. And what does that mean as an overall um, thing for women in, in the US? Well, I mean, I think that the episode that I was thinking of where this comes up uh, for me is um, when Dorothy uh, stands up to the guy who is basically verbally abusing uh, Blanche. Um, and I can't remember his name. So if Rex you- Rex Huntington. Yes, R Rex Huntington. And she has been stood up by him a number of times. And he finally says he wants to go out with her. And then she wasn't wearing the right thing, even though he, to he supposedly told her they were going to dinner at a restaurant. He changes it to a barbecue and he says he can't wait for her and all this. Um, she does his laundry anyway, and like, you know, just says really not nice things about her. And finally, Dorothy has had it. And she says, this is ridiculous because Blanche has gone to change. So she's left the room. And Dorothy says, this is ridiculous. You can't talk to her like this. You, you know, who do you think you are? Um, and he like lays his hands on Dorothy, right? Well, then... Blanche all of a sudden is like, no, this is serious. Before that, she was like saying he's, you know, he's just being Rex and you're, you know, over-exaggerating. He didn't mean anything by that. He, all the cover-up. So again, I think it's funny because Dorothy is like being the protector of Blanche and then she gets hands lay, laid on her by Rex. And then Blanche comes in there and she is like a pit bull. She's like, you get out of here and you may not touch my friend. And you, what kind of man do you think you are? And it's just this moment where we realize that any of them are capable of, of assuming that role, you know? I never even thought about it that way. That's, that's so true. And it's just this, yeah, the, the like tiger mom, protective mom comes out of Blanche so suddenly right and like we've been watching the entire episode and it's not there for herself mm -hmm. that happens also on the um when they're protesting the tuna fish the tuna fishermen <laughs> um i forget the i think it's dorothy or maybe it's even rose one of the fishermen puts his hands on one of the girls and blanche punches him I was going to say there's a lot of gender bending that goes on there too. I mean, it's almost always Dorothy that that plays this man character. I mean, it cracks me up whenever she does it. I mean, I get it. She has the low voice. Um, she's really tall. Um, the wardrobe is very interesting that Dorothy wears during the whole series. I mean, honestly, I mean, I love the Arthur, but I'm like, please. I mean, that's a lot of culottes, you know? Um, but there's uh, the, uh, the outfit she's wearing in the prison scene where she goes, I did time in Attica, you know, that's I like, right. and she, she says like, you know, I work in the public school system. It's not much different than this. Um, the juxtaposition <laughs> of that character in the outfit she's wearing to meet Burt Reynolds is just primo. Yeah. And then, um, the other one that I was thinking of is the one where, um, the actor is visiting their local community theater or whatever and they're all making a play for the actor she's she's the sheriff 
So she's wearing the sheriff costume complete with a fake pot belly. And it's just, and she's talking in the lowest voice ever, you know, and I'm just thinking to myself, okay, like there have to be like some gender bending people on the screenwriting for this because there's no way that they came up with this, but it's just, I, I'm priceless is, is what I would say, you know? That's actually, so we talked to um, an, another doctor, uh, uh, Dr. Kate Brown. She just wrote recently the TV Milestone series. She wrote the, the book on the Golden Girls. And she has a chapter in there uh, called The Queering of Dorothy Zbornak. And it's about yes. queer readings of that character. And it, it yeah. was just so fascinating. It mentions all of that stuff, and including when she also, uh, Sophia mentions how she sang Old Man River and Showboat. And B. Arthur actually does it like for the camera. She's like, get a little drunk. And then she just drops it, you know? And uh, I think Sophia goes, you know, pussycat still got it. Um, it's really fascinating. Lauren, was there any other um, moments that sort of came to mind in terms of highlighting the fan message boards? Those are the two examples that I had, but um, if there's anything else that you notice that is sort of in that vein of, um, things that women aren't really allowed to admit to or, you know, like allowed to feel. Um, I think that that, you know, we'd be, we'd be interested in talking about that. There's there's a bit of that in terms of just vulnerability in general on the Golden Girls. And I think a lot of these shows too. Um, and it's interesting that, I mean, it makes sense. The TV is where people find their identification and then like eventually the permission to act or feel that in their own lives. But um, I'd be curious to know if there's anything else that jumped out at you while you were reading these thousands of pages of fan messages. Um, I do think the connectivity, I mean, obviously, you know, because it was uh, for me, TV female foursomes. I mean, it was about the connectivity amongst uh, the shows as well. So those are things that, that came out to me. Um, the fact that, you know, Susan Harris was such a groundbreaking um, writer um, and, and, you know, writing in this very modern uh, women's voice at the time. I think, you know, it's interesting because I don't think that those shows actually would be still on the air today. Um, the writing was just so good, right? Like it transcends time. Um, the, the sad part about it is, um, you know, we just had this great discussion about them buying condoms and that, you know, of course, this is what women of a certain age should be doing freely. But we know that the stigma of aging and women's sexual desire is still very much a part of our culture. So it's like, it's groundbreaking in that time, but it's also still groundbreaking. That same episode would produce the same kind of tittering laughter right because th the reality is is that women of a certain age right are not allowed to uh be uh have sexual agency right that's not something we talk about in our culture so that's a, a reality um and i think you could you all uh brought up the um hiv episode and I think that's true too. Like there's still stigma that um, sexually transmitted diseases, especially HIV, um, people deserve that, right? They deserve that disease. And that's, you know, somehow been sent, um, you know, from above to, you know, as a punishment for people who can't hold it together, right? Like that cause these issues in their own lives. And Rose does, uh, emote that towards Blanche. I mean, I agree with you that it isn't, isn't in the same way as the other episode that we were talking about where they have this conversation, but she's really villainizing Blanche very directly. And for Rose's character to do that is, is really powerful because Rose never gets mad at anybody and never even if she is really, really mad, she's likely to like storm out and go to a room and not speak to somebody, not use harsh language or harsh tones or, you know, be, you know, very pointed. So the fact that she does that, I think it, it does pack a, a punch. Um, and it is really useful that 
Blanche is able to say that no one deserves, you know, to die from HIV and it doesn't matter what their behaviors are and that it's not a bad person's disease. So that's, and that actually, I talk about that in the book um, as connected to a similar episode in Designing Women that's titled Killing All the Right People. Um, and they actually, the, the Designing Women actually lose a friend, uh, a young <clears throat> male friend, white male friend, a very attractive um, friend to, the, to HIV and AIDS. Um, and in that episode, it's surrounding a debate that uh, Mary Jo Shively, Annie Potts' character, is having on sexual education in the school district, and she uh, is having a hard time uh, getting it together to stand up and be strong about it. And after he dies, um, she is able to do it because she says that there's nothing that your uh, son or my daughter should do tonight that will uh, make them end up dead. And, uh, and she means sexually. And so it's just a very profound moment. I think the fact that both of those shows uh, in that same era are addressing that particular issue of the stigma surrounding uh, sexually transmitted diseases broadly and HIV in particular really, really matters. So I don't know to what extent that's helpful to you, but that's how I see it. Very helpful. Um, yeah, Mary Jo actually really emerges, like when I was going through, um, particularly what you wrote about designing women, she really emerges as like the hero a lot. And it's funny because in my recollection, obviously Julie Sugarbaker is, you know, I put her on a very high pedestal and keep her there for my whole life. Um, but I also, I just like love Suzanne. So I don't always think of Mary Jo as much, but I, I'm very interested and excited to revisit that. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, the portrayal of women of this age, particularly because you also talk about Hot in Cleveland. And Betty White is, of course, on Hot in Cleveland. But the other women are, I would imagine, relatively close to the age that the Golden Girls are supposed to be when the show mm -hmm. starts. Like, mm -hmm. maybe a little bit younger. But these women are, you know, it's like, it's Valerie Bertinelli, who's beautiful. And they're just the perception of... Um, middle-aged women I guess has in order to be on tv like they have to be hot now so mm -hmm. um you know I, I wanted to see what you think about that because I I do think they're roughly the same age and, and not exactly the same circumstances but kind of mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's true and I mean I think what's interesting to me too though about it is I have not studied this, but I mean, there's something about Betty White has got something going on. Let me tell you, because I don't, you know, the woman's like a hundred years old and people are still like, va, 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 boom, you know? Um, and so I, I wonder if there, if, if someone can like, so as uh, Macy has made this call for recombinant characters and reception studies, I'm like, can somebody figure out what is that thing that Betty White has um, that allows her to age and still um, maintain um, her sexuality in a way, her se sensuality and sexuality in a way that makes it okay for, you know, men of all ages, um, at, certainly women of all ages, to admire her for that, you know, and, and how does she get away, get away with that? I don't, I mean, I get it that as El, Elka Ostrovsky, she doesn't have the same thing on that show, but Betty White herself, the person does. So I, I think that's a, an interesting question. It's a great point that you made about like Wendy Malick and Valerie Bertinelli's, you know, I don't, I mean, the one thing about both of them is they were such uh, big stars um, on their original shows that I feel like maybe they got trapped into those identities on Hot in Cleveland. I don't really write about that, but I think that that's kind of what happens to them. So that if they change their look very much, I think they would like lose that star quality that they possess from those other shows, maybe. Whereas it does seem like uh, 
that is not a problem, right, for Betty White. Um, although I know that Betty White was asked or she she either was asked or she tried out for Blanche's role and they put her in the Rose role. So that's interesting too, because of course she played a more Blanche-esque character mm -hmm. um, on the Mary Tyler Moore show, right? It was Definitely. the Mary Tyler. Yeah. yeah. And they, mm -hmm. I mean, that's such an interesting point too. And I, you know, I, it's, it's the perception of women and what they're, they are and are not allowed to do, but it's also just how Hollywood has evolved too, right? Because mm -hmm. we actually talked about this a little bit with, with Debbie Macy, where, you know, I mean, Betty White came up with TV, right? Like she came up mm -hmm. in, in the television, moving from radio, moving from more like song and dance type of style and grew up with the medium, you know, and mm -hmm. just, uh, it's different from being like, oh, you know, Wendy Malick had like this style and this show and Valerie mm -hmm. Bernelli was known for this because she was all over the place, you know, um, mm -hmm. and was able to sort of flex like that. But also, you know, I mean, you could argue that B. Arthur as Dorothy is just playing a different sort of version of Maude too. So it's like there's, yes. it depends a lot on the actress for sure. Um, but it's, yeah, it's interesting to think about. I think, um, the other thing too with Betty White, which I think we also, Lauren, remind me if we talked about this with uh, with Debbie of like her theory. Did we talk about her theory about, um, you know, Betty White has never sort of played the quote unquote Iron Maiden archetype where she's never been like the fierce feminist who is unsexy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, know? that's why America likes her. <laughs> right, <laughs> like the, she's she's America's sweetheart because she she's never not was threatening. like- Right. Exactly. She's not threatening in that way. Right. And she could be hot at 99, you know, um, <laughs> she did sort of lean into, um, I mean, it's so egregious now because she's, you know, in her, she's 99, but I feel like the last couple years when she was in that Super Bowl commercial a couple years ago, you know, she was like playing this very, um, aggressive character. And then she kind of leaned into that with her own social media, like her, her Twitter and stuff. Yeah. And also like hypersexual, like whenever she does an interview now, she's always talking about like the different men she wants to sleep with. And I, you know, obviously it's, it's very funny now, but yeah, Debbie did bring up that she had never, she had played the Blanche, the, the slut. She had played Rose, obviously this like, and that was sort of what she did a lot of after the Golden Girls too, was like very, um, innocent, naive, homegrown type of character. But yeah, she had never played the Maude or the Dorothy or even the Julia Sugarbaker. And so um, Debbie did talk about basically like that's what kept her as America's sweetheart for more than half a century. Well, it's yeah, funny too, the, the, um, the Super Bowl commercial you're talking about, right? She's Sophia, right? It's like, oh, she's old enough now or she's sort of passed into the no filter is okay zone because <laughs> she's super old. You're just like, I can say whatever the hell I want. You know, I'm old, I'm supposed to be colorful. That's how she is on Hot in Cleveland too. I would say she's like the Sophia character. Um, she's a little bit more, she's, I would honestly even say she's like a little bit more mean than Sophia sometimes. Um, but I think like that's totally the role that she's filling. Mm -hmm. I agree. So I, I think what's interesting too of thinking about these different roles, you know, that Betty White played and we talked about how she never was sort of the angry feminist. Like you talk a lot in the book and especially at the end where, yes, you know, these shows are very relevant still. We, you know, still uh, women especially are stigmatized in the medical profession. They're still battling, you know, issues with their sexuality as they age. They, there still is a problem with HIV AIDS and thinking that it is a punishment in, in a moral sense, et cetera, et cetera. There's so much that is 30 years old and yet so relevant today to a new audience watching it on Hulu. But at the same time, like, you know, there's a lot of, you know, dated uh, issues that come up and, you know, there is valid criticism of, of a lot of the shows and including the Golden Girls, you know, it's four white straight women of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a certain economic standard. And it, you know, it, it still is mainstream in a different type of way. Um, but at the end, you talk really interesting about, it's almost like a don't throw the baby out with the bathwater type of situation, right? Like it, it doesn't have to be like, it, it doesn't have to be a, is it feminist or not type of argument, but yet, you know, our road to sort of equality, especially in the social justice standpoint, is always going to be bumpy. 
and you know this is sort of like heading in the right direction. So could you talk a little bit about that if it came up in your research or if it came up on any message boards or sort of just pontificate about <laughs> about that idea for a minute? Yeah, I mean, I I think one thing that uh, comes up is that exactly what you said, and I thought the way you said that was so so powerful because you're like, and we're still fighting, you know, the medical community to have like women treated as patients that have real issues and real concerns, right? I think that you hit the nail on the head, um, and I would say that those examples that you particularly gave, um, they, they are social justice issues for women. And whether you and I would probably even add, if you were a woman of color, that you would be treated worse by the medical community than a, a white woman from a privileged class or a privileged white woman, right? So I think in some ways, it's like, the the uh, golden girls were able to say things um that that other like that other women of color would have liked to have been able to say or that you know women of different working class women would have liked to be able to say right like so the things that roseanne barr says you know then you know these women are saying it and they can say it and get the message across in a way that they're like oh that's just roseanne right so I, I do think that this is a, a, a forward thinking show, a progressive show, and that there are feminist moments, um, certainly in claiming their sexuality is, is one of those uh, cornerstone moments. Um, I would also say that they challenge each other. And, you know, for example, you brought up their kids, right? So like, who are their kids going to end up with? Right. Uh, they also we did not talk about this. Um, they talk a, a, about same sex partners. It comes up with Blanche's brother, for example. It also comes up when Jean, who is the friend of Dorothy, comes and visits. And and she uh, is very attracted to Rose as more than just friends. And, you know, that whole joke about uh, her being Lebanese or being a lesbian is very funny. But the reality of it is is they manage in this um, very vanilla group of women to, to talk about um, same-sex relationships and same-sex partnerships. And they talk about it very respectfully um, in terms of the relationship between Jean and Rose um, in terms of their friendship. And how basically, even though Rose is not interested in Jean sexually, um, can they not remain friends? And is this something they could work through? And they agree to that. And so I think that's really powerful. Um, so there are there are places where I would say they almost like move beyond what we would say the scope of their characters are um, as they evolve. Uh, on the show um, over time. And then of course, we, I mean, we didn't talk about this, but you know, Dorothy's brother being a cross-dresser, that comes up a lot too. So I would say the cross-dressing there, I mean, there's even some episode where they're at some party, you know, some event where the, the band is a cross-dressing um, background. So I, again, I'm thinking to myself, there's somebody on, you know, I don't know if it's Susan Harris herself or some other writer on the show who is really uh, pushing the boundaries um, of, of gender queerness on the show. I don't think it's only Dorothy, right? I think there's there's more elements of that going on in the show. So I, I think, yeah, I mean, personally, I would say that, that for its time, it was hugely progressive. I think the fact that it's still can pack a punch now um, shows that it was very forward thinking for its era. And I would say when you stack it up with some of those other shows that I was talking about, um, you can see the trajectory of um, development of that show and of the other shows in terms of pushing those boundaries and pushing those end rows. I mean, I, I totally think that somebody could write, um, I don't know that I have read this, but I think somebody could write that in some ways Sex and the City was less progressive than the Golden Girls for its time, 
right? You, mm -hmm. you could, you could get that reading out of it. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't make that argument per se, because I think there are other things going on in the sex in the city, but I, I think that there is a reading of it where, you know, Hey, come on, here we are in the two thousands and this is the best you can do. Like reinscribe, like, you know, some kind of feminine trope where every woman is after a man. And that's, that's all there is to the story. You know, that, that is a potential read of Sex in the City. Um, and I love- Now I want to write Sex that. In the City. Now you want to write it. I want to write it, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I love it. No, I, I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's just really interesting. That's an interesting theory. Cause I do, as a person who has only seen, I'd probably say about six Sex in the City episodes ever, four to six. And they're mm. always the same ones. Cause it's always like, I catch it on a, you know, rerun. And oh, okay. As the eternal rule is that, you know, you have to see the same episode a million times, but uh, it always seemed like even more, somehow more heteronormative than, or like heteronormative than the Golden Girls. And then also just like, they could be more explicit because they were on HBO. But it's like, I, every time I see Samantha, I always am like, eh, Blanche had like whipped cream in her bedroom. She had trapezes. She had a mirror in her ceiling. She was kinkier than you, man. You know? so, so thinking about how, you know, the Golden Girls really laid the groundwork for a lot of like shows like Sex in the City and all the other ones that you discuss in the book is, uh, it's really interesting to, it like it moved the needle in a way to let these shows be what they were, um, but simultaneously, you know, is still hyper relevant because it was so ahead. Um, and, and Lauren and I talk about this all the time too. It's just like, what is really important to even, you know, reading between the lines of all the very like specific social justice issues, but in the way that, and you mentioned this, that the characters constantly evolve and that, you know, a certain age does not mean the death of learning or growing or That's changing right. your mind. And that is just a huge part of, of making the world a better place for everybody involved. Um, and growing up with that show, we now as adults can reflect on watching it as young women and, and having, mm -hmm. like knowing that that particularly affected us to see women owning themselves so much, owning up to their mistakes and, you know, owning up to the fact that that is what growing up is. It's constantly learning and changing your mind when you have new input. Yes, you said it very well, Sarah. Thanks. I do have a podcast, you know, so. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm these things up. <laughs> No, but it's, it's something, I mean, Lauren, you know, you and I talk about this all the time, even off of the podcast. It's just like how much, you know, this show in particular means to us in, in regard to those uh social issues that you know we're still working on but to to have that as a to have that on a popular medium and like you said primetime nbc was Main basically stream. all of america yeah and, yes. and hulu now dominant culture totally yeah. uh is is a it was a big deal big effing deal and I think also like, so my mom watched the show and I don't remember watching it with her very much because I was not living at home by then. But, um, you know, she was a fan of Maude, right? And she was a fan of Rhoda. And so this show for her was like the logical next step. I think this show was too provocative for her. I think it really did push her beyond her comfort zone. So that I, you know, and my mother is now mm, she, 70, well, 78, I think. So she, I'm saying that at that time, it really was that on point, right? Like it really was um, on the cutting edge of television and, and, and so was Designing Women. So those two shows, I think there's no, no doubt in my mind that we were kind of watching um, the progress that women were making. And I think it, in some ways, like, it's really sad to think about the, um, Susan Faludi backlash coming true, uh, in our lifetimes that we watched that we watched that backlash. And I remember thinking, uh, when Hillary Clinton didn't get elected, that, that, that glass ceiling is just shut right? Like it's just not going to be permeable or it's not, it's shatterproof, right? Like the, I don't know what to say about that. Um, and I understand that there were more 
things going on in the culture than just the glass ceiling, that that's like kind of a monolithic way to look at it. But when we think back to, you know, progress in um, the network era of television, um, I just, I kind of am silenced by it, right? Like, cause I don't know that. And, and so this is the down, the negative side of what you just said, which is, I don't know. I have not seen so many progressive uh, shows today, right? I have not seen it, so much evidence of that. Um, I do love the remake of One Day at a Time. I think that show has a lot of power. And I love that Rita Moreno Rita is Marino. on there talk, <laughs> talking of women of a, of a certain age. You know, I watched The Electric Company and she was one of the people I watched Electric Company for, right? As a kid, right? I thought she she was loud and she was brilliant and she was staccato and I wanted to be Rita Moreno. I probably still do want to be Rita Moreno, right? Not, you know, I'm more, I'm over 50 and I want to be Rita Moreno. And when I was like, I don't know, five, I wanted to be Rita Moreno. So wherever you are, Rita Moreno, I hope you know, you've got a lot of women who are still like holding you up as awesome. So a, a real testament. Um, right. Yeah. So if you ever do a side special issue on Rita Moreno, you have to invite me back. We will. <laughs> Rita Moreno. Every, I mean, she podcast. is she is on Empty Nests. Uh, the you know the episode <laughs> that she also she didn't is. like. Yeah, I feel like she would like to forget that. Um, yeah, exactly. But that's what I was going to say. Like, despite the fact that, you know, Empty Nests as the episode exists, like we're all Rita Moreno fans. Yes, of course. Um, I wanted to talk about, um, just respond to something you said about the lack of progress on television, because mm -hmm. I think that that, you know, when we talk about the Golden Girls as a progressive series, I think it's mm -hmm. easy to poke holes in that. And, and warranted holes you know I think there's some blind spots on race I think oh sure you know there's some blind spots um around gender and gender expression and and Bad body yeah a lot of body shaming stuff so there there are class there's class stuff right so there's a lot of pieces of it that are not quote-unquote progressive but I would mm -hmm. argue that if a show from the 80s is still progressive in every way in 2021. That's a bigger problem with our society than the, the show. <laughs> but the piece that is progressive is that it's for women over 50 who were the stars. And I feel like we still, you know, that's still pretty trailblazing, which is mm -hmm. a real bummer. Um, and I was reminded of, have you ever seen Grace and Frankie? It's Lily Tomlin. Yes, I love the Grace best, and right? But there was a news story about how Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda were being paid the same as um, Sam Watterson and Martin Sheen, who are the two male actors in it, who are definitely like the male leads, but supporting characters. Yes. Tomlin and Jane Fonda and the two men collectively were like, that's not right. They should be, mm -hmm. it's called Grace and Frankie. But right. you know that was only a couple years ago, and Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin, it doesn't get any bigger than that. And these women are still right. fighting to be paid the same as the men on their show. So there is certainly some more progress to be made. Yep, I agree. I like. I'm watching Madam Secretary. I'm loving that. Um, it does remind me of. Is it Commander in Chief with Gina Davis? Yes. <laughs> right. So yeah. I like I want to write about those two shows. Um, and especially because Madam Secretary is becoming the president, at least the last episode I was watching, she was becoming president. So I'm like thinking, OK, there's there could be a TV, another TV. Some, maybe it's just an article. Maybe it's not a whole book, but still like that there could be something about that women leaders. Um, I I. I'm very impressed that Kamala Harris has become vice president, but I would have rather had um, an, a, a woman president, right? Like I'm, I'm happy, I'm glad Kamala is there. I think she's awesome, but I'm just like, really? We, I mean, and, and, and I think it's fair to say, I was thrilled when President Barack Obama became president as a African-American man 
as the first African-American president, I don't understand why having a woman president is so much harder, right? I don't, and I, and, you know, if somebody tells me it's because there are no good women, I'm going to punch them. So (laughs) punch them like Blanche. Yeah. Yeah. Punch them like Blanche. That's what I'm going to do. So anyway, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, I would love to hear what Gina Davis has to say about that because I feel like she's, um, I love that she's at the Gina Davis Institute is doing so much for not just for women um, actresses, but for women directors, for women um, in cinema, for women movie makers, you know, for all of the women who um, work in representation. And I really do think the discussion about representations of women is remains critical to our success long term, because if we can't see ourselves in those roles on television, you know, in mainstream media, we're never actually going to become that in real life. I just don't think we will, so. Like you say in your book, that's bell hooks is popular culture is where the pedagogy is. Like that's that's how we see ourselves reflected. And I love that you talk about, you know, we have a woman vice president, we can be happy about that and we can still strive for more. I mean, that's, that's kind of, that perfectly sums up like where the Golden Girls is at. It's great. It's progressive. It got us further. We can even do more than was shown. Wendy, this has been awesome. Thank you so it's much. It's been for... great to meet you, and I appreciate your persistence, Sarah. And I, you know, I mean, you know, I like it. Just so you know, like we faculty people, we're busy, and like <laughs> we love to talk about our scholarship. So I'm, I'm just so grateful that you stayed uh in touch until we could find something that would work out for everybody so thank you absolutely we love your book and and everybody listening to enough wicker out there take a look at dr wendy burns artelino's book tv female foursomes and their fans you can get it on bookshop.org and support your local bookstore all right thank you everybody thank you bye-bye bye